and then we'll summarize the book as a whole as we finish up. You'll recall that at the end of chapter 10, the leadership put their commitment to Yahweh into writing. Their commitment to follow Yahweh into writing. We spent some time introducing that, and then we went right straight to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, observing that the New Testament has a lot of information in it as well about commitment. And we concluded that in view of the fact that we have been justified, and we're declared righteous, not by works, but by grace through faith, believers are to demonstrate that commitment to God by presenting our bodies, refusing to conform to the cultural norms and standards of this world, and by being transformed through renewed minds. That was chapter 10 of Nehemiah by way of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In chapter 11, the chapter that we begin to study tonight, the Jews followed up on their commitment with a plan to repopulate Jerusalem. It's one thing to rebuild the walls so that there's security from that angle. But it's another thing to repopulate Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus probably had in the neighborhood of 40,000 people. It's really difficult to pin down population figures in the ancient world because sometimes there are grossly exaggerated. Figures of how many people were in a particular army sometimes are grossly exaggerated. But most likely, Jerusalem's normal population in the time of Jesus was around 40,000. The normal population, or the population right now in Jerusalem, as Nehemiah chapter 11 begins, is maybe down between six and 8,000. So it's quite less populated. Granted, the city is not as large as it was geographically in, in Jesus' day. But the point is, you can't have a walled city that is not also populated because it's still not very defensible. In chapter 11, the Jews are going to follow up on the commitment that they had made to repopulate Jerusalem. It needed to be properly defended, and in order to be properly defended, it needed to be populated. The reason it needed to be properly defended was because Jerusalem was the center of Yahweh worship for the entire world. It's not that way in Christianity today. We don't have a location that's the location of our worship. Some of you have been to Jerusalem, and if you have, you probably, like me, you know that there's a special feeling you get when you come around that corner from Jericho and see Jerusalem for the first time. It's a very special feeling. And you almost feel like, at least I did, I felt like I was in the center of the world right there. Not New York, not Paris, not London, not any of the many other cities that I've been to, Johannesburg, South Africa, or Delhi, India, any of those places. Nothing like it. Not, but Rome is not like it, although it's very interesting. But Jerusalem's a very special place. It has that feel. But for the Christian, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever we go, we're taking our place of worship with us. But it was very, Jerusalem was very central to Yahweh worship in the past. It would be again in the future. So that's why it's so important that they go back and rebuild the temple. That's why it's so important that the wall be rebuilt. That's why it's also very important that someday the Temple Mount be retested. Sometimes people say, well, the end of the world is going to happen on May 21st. And I felt sorry for those people. Because if Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour, he doesn't know, then how does this guy know? He wrote a book earlier in the 90s saying the same thing. He predicted a day coming. And I don't know why the person takes it seriously. I take some offense at it personally. I have to say that. Because what he does by doing these silly kind of things is it gives a particular day that all this stuff's going to come to pass. 
if he's ridiculing pre-tribulational theology, which is theology that's based on a plain, literal, grammatical, historical, normal meaning of the text, it ridicules that. So people like me or people from now tend to have to answer questions that shouldn't have to be answered because they're not going to ask that. But it's also sad, too, because look how many people he's fooled. How many people he got all worked up? So you have the people that were ridiculing, the people that were all worked up, and it's just it's not the way that God has to design the world. The point of Nehemiah is, especially in this concluding part, is that Jerusalem is central to Yahweh worship. We have to get our minds wrapped around that. It's not the same as we have today. You can worship God here in Dallas, Albuquerque, Mexico, maybe not in New York, but you could theoretically you could even do it in New York. It's possible there are a few that do it there. But Jerusalem is central. So keep that in mind as we see this commitment. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Kind of a big deal to have to move from where you are to move into the city. It's an agricultural economy. Not everybody wants to live in the city. In, in those days, it was probably even more advantageous to live out where you had some land, where there were grazing areas for your flocks, for your sheep, and able to grow grain and other things. So it's a sacrifice to move into Jerusalem. It's not so much. You, you can't use today's standards and import them back then. Now, some of the leaders had already chosen to live in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 1. But then Nehemiah initiated a plan to determine which one family in ten of those living in the city or outside the city would move into it. There were also additional immigrants who volunteered to move and to live in there. We see that in chapter 2. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. There's a cross-section of leaders who live in Jerusalem, while other leaders live outside of Jerusalem in the towns of Judah. That's verse 3. The residents of Jerusalem included Jews from the tribe of Judah, you see that in verses 4 through 6, and the tribe of Benjamin in chapters 7 through 9. There's twice as many people in Jerusalem from Benjamin as from Judah. There are priests that will live in Jerusalem. That's, chapter, that's verses 10 through 14 of chapter 11. There are Levites that will live in Jerusalem. That's verses 15 through 18 of chapter 11. There are gatekeepers that will live in Jerusalem. That's, that can be verse 19. And the rest, according to verse 20, lived in outlying towns except for the temple service. So that's verses 1 through 20. The remainder of chapter 11 is essentially of a roster of those who live outside of Jerusalem. We could cover that verse by verse, but I don't think it would be as profitable as moving on to chapter 12. The first 26 verses of chapter 12 is a listing of the priestly family. The priests and the Levites were considered to be among the most important people that had returned from the exile because it was their responsibility to reestablish temple worship. Once again, Yahweh worship was centered in the temple in Jerusalem. So it's no small thing that it be repopulated with priests and those who will lead worship. For worship to be reestablished in the land, there had to be an active priesthood in Jerusalem. So that is 
chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. It's a mock tense of those in the priesthood. The final portion of chapter 12 provides instruction for the dedication ceremony of the wall. Then in chapter 13, chapter 13 is where we'll spend most of our time tonight. Let me give you a little background in chapter 13 first, and then we'll cover, come back and cover perhaps a little more exposition of it. According to verse 6 of this chapter, chapter 13, Nehemiah returned to Artaxerxes in 432 B.C. Now, if you are trying to write something down, that's not a bad date. Because two weeks from now, when we begin the study of Malachi, that date's going to come up again. The reason it's going to come up again, 432 B.C., because when we're trying to ascertain when Malachi ministered, it looks very much like Malachi is going to minister in Nehemiah's absence. So Nehemiah leaves. He's done all this work. He leaves and goes back to Artaxerxes in 432 B.C. And that's not rare at all. Customary, in fact. Because the king had sent Nehemiah to this province to check it out, to see what's going on, to rebuild the wall with his blessing. But from time to time, the king, ancient kings, would require accountability. So Nehemiah is going to be recalled back to Persia. He's going to have to give a report. And it it appears as though he gives that report over about a two-year period. And then he's going to come back. But for this period, he's gone. Sometime later, we don't know for sure, but it looks like it's about two years, Nehemiah is going to return to Jerusalem. Once again, Malachi, the prophet that we'll study two weeks from tonight, or begin to study two weeks from tonight, is most likely going to minister in Nehemiah's absence. All these guys overlap. They knew each other. The prophet Malachi is going to challenge the Jews in Judah for essentially the same sins that Nehemiah challenged them for. Conservative scholars usually date Nehemiah, I mean, I'm sorry, Malachi to 432 to 431. We'll talk about that more in two weeks. Also, it's interesting to see that Malachi is going to have to come in and preach the same essential message. A little different style, certainly a lot of big difference, quite a different style. But the same essential message to the same people. Now, you think if they heard it once, they'd have got it. That's, that's all you need, right? But you say it one time, and you should write a book about it. No, of course not. That's not the way to do it. Not everybody's ready for the same message at the same time. Not everybody's getting the same level of concentration. You all haven't had the same kind of days today. You all don't feel the same way physically. So that's why pastors repeat things from time to time. That's also why the Bible repeats. And so Malachi is going to repeat a lot of stuff. In a different way, that's key, in a different way than Nehemiah does. I'm all for repetition. But I'm for space and varied repetition. Malachi is going to say a lot of the same things that Nehemiah did, but he's going to say them in a different way, in a totally different format. It's going to be a question-answer format. He's going to make a statement, and then he's going to, then they're going to ask him a question, and then he's going to refute their question by making a further statement. So it's a much different format than what we'll see here. Just because we learn something once doesn't mean it's, we're, we're finished with that. The Apostle Paul was learning about God and God's person and His work to the day he died. The pursuit of the knowledge of God is a lifetime pursuit. It doesn't just end after you finish the course. I've often found that it's hated 
when I went to church on this Sunday night. I mean, he hated me. He's a wonderful guy, and I love him so much. But if I just got under his tent, he just wouldn't get it. He would buy us tickets to Monday Night Football, back when the orders were blood and blue. And that was a big thing, to go to Monday Night Football game back then. He would buy us tickets to Astros games. He would set up meetings for us. This is before I was in the ministry. He set up meetings for us. Those were essential that I attend. But I would keep you know, plugging away at it, and I would go do my thing on, on the appropriate nights. And then finally one day he said, when are you going to finish that book? Anyway. I need it ever since I've known you. And I said, no, I don't think I've ever known you. So we shouldn't be surprised that Malachi will say some of the things that he will say. There are certain things that are on Nehemiah's mind that he concludes this book with. The first comes up in verses 1 through 3, and it includes the exclusion of foreigners. Now we're in chapter 13. On that day, they read aloud, from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Verse 3, So it came about, when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Of course, a little bit of destruction. In verses 1 and 2, you see the teaching. In verse 3, you see the application to the teaching. Now, I have Paul's epistles, say, for example, Ephesians. The first three chapters are heavily doctrinal. The second three chapters are heavily applicational. In Romans, the first 11 chapters, heavily doctrinal. Chapters 12 through 15 and in verse 16, heavily applicational. Well, here we have two verses that are doctrinal. They remember what it is they're supposed to do. And this seems so simple. It's almost pedantic. But they, they were told what to do, and Eureka, they do it. So I tell you, the fact that this is even mentioned tells me that there are so many times that we know exactly what we're supposed to do, and we, for some insane reason, choose otherwise. So they, they recall that they're not supposed to cohabitate with foreigners, particularly Ammonites and Moabites. They're not to be included into the assembly not for reasons of racial prejudice. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with evil companions corrupting good morals. They see that they're supposed to be excluded from this fellowship, and so they finally do it. That's one of the things that kicked out Israel in the first place. They didn't abide by God's strict regulations, and they suffered for it. For example, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that if you're to have a God-honoring marriage, you need to be married to someone that's also, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you need to be married to another believer in the Lord Jesus. Because if you're not, you're never going to be able to have that continuity, that harmony that you should have. It's hard enough if you are married to someone who's a believer. But if you're not married to someone who's a believer, you never have a standard whereby you can settle issues. You can't say, well, okay, well, what does the Bible say about this? What do you think the Lord would want us to do? Let's pray about this. You can't do it if your spouse is not a believer. There are reasons why God put that in. Not because if you're a woman, he hates men, or if you're a man, he hates women. It has nothing to do with any kind of that. And here it didn't have to do with him having any racial prejudice toward the Ammonites or the Moabites. And then we'll see in Malachi, he doesn't have any racial prejudice toward the Edomites. There's a reason, though, why they're excluded. 
because it's not good for their spiritual life. You need to be careful here. It's also not the healthiest thing for your spiritual life to only be around other Christians. If you are, you'll never have an opportunity to witness to anybody that's not. You'll never be light to the world if you only stay inside the walls of the church and never venture out. There's a group of people that want to do that. The whole monastic movement seemed to bent toward that direction. In the monastic movement, these early monks realized that culture had degenerated and it was terrible and they wanted no part of it. So they said, essentially, I'm generalizing here, but they said, essentially, we're leaving this. And the first ones went out into the desert and they kind of lived by themselves and then they went out in groups and they built these monasteries and they stayed inside those walls and never dealt with anybody outside the walls. They felt like they were being spiritual. Granted, it's easier to be spiritual in some ways if you don't have to deal with any unbelievers at all. If you just decide, I'm going to go to the four walls, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to eat my bread, I'm going to pray in the morning, and I'll go out and sweep the floors in the afternoon, I'm going to come back and pray in the evening. But that's not a real life. And I wonder if, if these kind of people ever fulfilled what God had for them. Listen, the monastic movement seems appealing sometimes. That's why Christians buy big ranches. Everybody says, let's just go live on the ranch. Well, somebody did that. Let's just all go live on the land. That ends up usually being cultish when that happens, doesn't it? But not always. It usually ends up being cultish because that's not the way we're supposed to live. We do have to interact with our culture. But we have to be careful how much we interact with them. If you find that all your friends are unbelievers and you don't have any believing friends, then that's going too far the other way. For worship in Israel, they had to exclude Ammonites and Moabites, and there's a reason why. Verse 2, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. What happened to the law? It's gotten worse. We get almost to the end of the Old Testament. That happened pretty much right from the get-go, right after the Exodus. A long time ago. Nevertheless, the principle still stands. Now, there's one, if you're thinking tonight, there's one seems to be one glaring exception to this. At least one, perhaps two, but one glaring exception. Who was a Moabite or a Moabitess that was an exception to this rule? And the answer is, of course, Ruth. So why was Ruth included in if the Moabites and Ammonites in general were not? Well, the best understanding that Old Testament scholarship has about that is that Ruth was a believer in Yahweh. She was a Yahweh worshiper. If you're a Yahweh worshiper, you're then no longer a threat to Yahweh worship. There's no reason to exclude a Ruth from the congregation. But since most Moabites were not like Ruth, there's a general statement that we're to exclude them. So that's the first thing that happens in a positive light. If there's nothing racial about it, racial prejudice is evil. All men are created in the image of God to dislike one because of skin color or to dislike someone because of gender, height, or lack thereof, or whatever it may be, hair color, whatever it may be, that's an evil. God doesn't put up with that at all. This is not racial prejudice. This is guarding the purity of worship. Same thing we do, too. We just do it in different ways. I do my best to guard the purity of worship here. I'm very careful who I let stand up here and speak. I want to make sure that their theology is correct. I do whatever I can to, to protect the spiritual purity of our worship as well. And that's what's happening in verses 1 through 3. Foreigners were excluded for spiritual reasons, not for racial reasons. 
verses 4 through 9, there's one fellow that's still hanging around, and he needs to go because he's a troublemaker. And if he doesn't go, he's going to stay in that church or that assembly, not the church. He'll stay in that assembly, and he's going to foment trouble. And his name is Tobias. Remember him from earlier on? Look at verse 4. Now, prior to this, Eliakim, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, probably closely related, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings and the frankincense, the utensils and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. This guy's living on the temple ground. Tobiah, remember him from earlier in the book? He's one of the ones that tried to do everything he could to stop the rebuilding of the wall. Something's wrong with this city. There's an enemy inside the gate. He's not at the gate. He's inside the gate. But he happens to be related to to Eliakim. Verse 6. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. That was my introduction to this text. You'll recall just a few moments ago, he said that he had to take take leave to go back and make a report to the king of Persia. So while that's happening, you've heard the phrase, while the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, that's what's happening here. Eliakim takes the opportunity to bring the fox right into the hen house because of a personal relationship he has with then in verse 7, and I, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliakim had done to Tobiah by preparing him a room in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the room. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I can't help but remember something that happens when somebody that I was personal. Across the street, there was this, there was this wonderful young couple. And he drove home one day from, I think, church one evening. And it's a nice neighborhood. And you look out in the front yard, and there's a lot of clothes out there. There's a suitcase out there. We found out later, all over the front yard, we found out later that Mama had decided that Daddy didn't need to leave, but live there anymore. I don't know what he had done. I'm sure knowing the relationship between husbands and wife, I'm sure it's all his fault. But at least that's the way she looked at it. And I'll never forget that scene. And I, because I was thinking of the embarrassment that this guy must have felt when he came home and saw all his clothes, everything, everything that he owned was out in that front yard. When Nehemiah comes back and finds out that Eliakim, the priest, has given a room in the temple precinct to this enemy of Israel, he's just packed, just as packed off as that wife was. And he goes in there and throws all of Tobias' stuff out. Making a point. I guess he could have called a moving company. I guess he could have called some of the people and said, Can you help me move this to wherever Tobiah is? But he's making a point. It's the same point I think that Jesus is making when he throws the money changers out of the temple. Meek, mild Jesus. He throws them out of the temple because they are perverting his father's house. His father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. They have perverted it into a place of commerce. And so Jesus is throwing them out because they have grotesquely abused the whole Mosaic system. I think Nehemiah is doing that 400 plus years before Jesus does it in the temple. But he's throwing one guy out because he has perverted the whole system. Not only does he throw them out, he wants the room sterilized. 
to tore off and we're going to scrub this down because we don't want any remnant left of, left of this fellow. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the room. And they returned their utensils to the house of God with the grain offering and with frankincense. This fellow, Elihu, the high priest, was close relative of Tobiah. Tobiah, you recall, is the Ammonite leader, Ammonite leader, to oppose Nehemiah's effort to rebuild the wall. Go back up to verse 1. It's found written in the Mosaic Law that no Ammonite or Moabite could even be there. They were, he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place, and it's not a big secret. Elias here can't come back and say, well, you know, I don't see it. I never read that part. It's not that hard to find. So how could Elias come up to, I never knew that having an Ammonite that's an enemy of Israel living in the house of God was wrong. He did it because the cat's away and the mice are going to play. And that's not a healthy thing to have. Most likely, Elihu was given one of the temple storerooms that has been converted into an apartment for Tobiah and some sort of personal favor because they're related. Nehemiah takes a hard line when he gets back. Sometimes leadership has to do that. No one likes accountability. No one in their right mind likes accountability. But there are times when you have to do it. If you're going to be in that position, if you're going to be the CEO of the company, if you're going to be a branch manager, if you're going to be in any kind of leadership, sometimes you do have to confront. You didn't like it, but sometimes it's necessary to preserve the integrity of an organization. And in those times, failure to confront doesn't mean you're a nice guy. It means you're a weak leader. Then in verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah says, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their place. All of Judah then brought the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouse. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shemaliah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedadiah the Levite, in addition to them, and Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it is their task to distribute to the kingsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God in its service. These are important verses. Because the people had failed to bring their tithes into the temple, the Levites had to abandon their service in the temple to provide for their own needs. And that's not God's plan. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of the legitimacy of taking care of those whose responsibility it is to minister on a more full-time basis. In the New Testament, it's those who are in pastoral ministry that are singled out for salary, although it's not illegitimate to provide for others. I have to say, I'm like most other pastors. Most pastors are hesitant to preach this kind of idea with any frequency because we're all fearful that it will look self-serving. But to fail to tell you that's going to be a disservice to you. The congregation has responsibility to pool their resources and take care of those that are ministering to them. 
that's just the way God set it up. In fact, Paul taught that men who were faithful in that, in that particular office, particularly those that were faithful at teaching, were worthy of double honor. In other words, twice the salary. Meaning, basically, that they should be valued and remunerated in a way that's consistent with their value to the body of Christ. The other side of that is that faithful ministers, faithful pastors, will be happy to minister for nothing. While at the same time, faithful congregations ought to be willing to double pay their pastors. You see the dynamic? If someone is faithful, they're not concerned with the amount of salary they receive. If a congregation is faithful, they're not trying to starve the pastor. There's no reason to hesitate to teach them. What's happening in Israel at the time, back into the Old Testament context, the people had a responsibility under the Mosaic Law to tithe a certain amount of their income, to tithe a certain amount of their resources. They refused to do it. Now, Malachi will have the more famous teaching on this, and we'll see that later. They refused to do it. Malachi is going to say, by doing that, you're robbing God. And because they refused to do it, the people that should have been supported were having to leave their ministries and go out and earn a living. Who does that ultimately hurt? The people that they were ministering to. That's who it hurt. They're shortchanging themselves. They lost out because they refused to follow God's standards. They want to squeeze a nickel out of somebody. They want to squeeze it, hold it back, and by doing so, they hurt themselves. Again, I, I want to be very clear. Faithful pastors will minister for nothing. They'll give their lives and minister for nothing. But on the other hand, faithful congregations should be willing. Now, they're not always able. They should be at least willing to provide an abundance. And if that dynamic is going on, then you're going to have healthy environments in the church. So in response to Nehemiah's reprimand, and we'll see when we read Malachi, Malachi preaches. The people again begin to tithe. We'll see that when we get to Malachi chapter 3. They'll start tithing again. And think just what? Think what for investment. The problem is that we'll cover in Malachi. People have gone back and taken that tithe say, well, if you don't tithe, you're going to be cursed. And if you do start giving that 10%, then God's automatically going to bless you. Hold that thought. That's not necessarily what Malachi is teaching. There's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament tithing. We'll also study that in Malachi, so I hope you'll come back. And finally, they begin to observe the Sabbath. Chapter 13, verses 15 through 22. In those days, I saw in Judah... Some who were treading wine presses, on, wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, and figs and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so I admonished them on that day that they sold food. Keeping the Sabbath separate is part of the Mosaic system. It's not part of the New Testament system. It's only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated. Now, the idea of setting aside a day where you worship in secret, the idea is certainly a biblical concept, but the Sabbath, that Sabbath worship is not. But it was back then, it's part of the Mosaic Law. And he, there were people that were violating that. But they weren't just Jews. Verse 16, also men of Tyre were living, 
blizzard where he imported fish and all kind of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. You can see he really just went out of business. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Don't you know that he probably wishes he didn't have to leave for those two years and come back and have all these troubles when he got back? This is another confrontation in the lesson, right? Did not your fathers do the same thing so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you're adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I remember when I was in Israel, I saw a modern day example of this. You had a city, a little hot, some particular areas, an archaeological dig, that happened to be on the Sabbath. And all of us wanted something to drink. So we go look and we told Mark, Mark, Mark the folks. Somebody else says, Mark, no problem, just going over to the Sabbath. What these folks had done in order to get around the Sabbath observance, they had taken all their wares outside from, from inside the shop and they put them outside onto the sidewalk. And they had their cash register and they were selling things to drink. So I asked them there, I said, how can you get away with this? I thought you weren't supposed to say anything. I'm glad you are, because I'm thirsty, but what's the deal? And so it's no problem at all. You see, if we sell it inside the shop, then that's working on the Sabbath. But I'm not really working on the Sabbath because I'm selling it out here. And I thought, now I know. Now I know why Jesus wanted to sign this on the day. <laughs> Talk about a good thing. And I thought, so change. Well, what these guys are doing is not really even a distortion. They're just blatantly violating the Sabbath. And Nehemiah comes and says, didn't you guys learn anything at all from the whole captivity thing? Didn't you learn something from that? That's one of the major reasons why there's trouble in the first place, because you didn't obey the Mosaic law. Verse 19, and it came about just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, that I commanded that the doors be shut, and that they should not open till after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Okay, you're not going to obey it? With regard to your free will, we're shutting the gate. These guys from Tyre are not coming back in. And we're going to enforce this. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. From that time on, they did not come to the Sabbath. I'm going to open up a tent on you. If I catch you out here again, I'm going to open, open you up. Nehemiah was that kind of leader. He had to be. I'm sure he didn't like that conversation. He didn't enjoy it, but he had to. Finally, in verses 23 and following, we read of a rebuke of mixed marriages. In those days, I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. Literally, I think that's more, more likely referring to the beard. I really never had a beard, but if I did, I think it probably hurt if someone tried to pull it out. So I continued with them, and cursed them, and struck them. Some of them had pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Or themselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? 
that among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him even to sin. They brought him down. This is nothing against foreigners. It's not, this is not xenophobia. That's not what this is all about. This is about maintaining spiritual purity in one of the most, actually the most intimate of all relationships, the marriage relationship. Satan knows where to attack. In our culture, I think he started attacking the family probably in the 60s, maybe before that, but at least in the 60s. How many times did you hear that this program needed to be reviewed? I heard it years ago in college. I mean, they made so much fun of Jean Cleaver with her dress, you know, looking, having her hair pushed and making dinner for Ward. What kind of example is she a sinful? I think she was great at sinful sinful. She was a happy woman. She was just a good one. Now, if God had wanted her to work in the marketplace, then she could have done that. That's fine, too. But Satan, a long time ago, decided wisely that the place to attack culture should be the family. And that's exactly what's happening here. That's why the Mosaic Law prohibited this. Because if you've got a bad if you've got a bad marriage, you're going to have a bad family unit. A bad family unit means a bad culture. Bad culture means that Yahweh worship is going to fail. There's a reason for all this. Ezra has confronted this very same problem in Ezra chapter chapters nine and ten. So the conclusion: Book of Nehemiah records the fortification of Jerusalem and the restoration of Israel. Two essential steps that were necessary to reestablish God's people in God's land. Nehemiah continued the work that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and Ezra had begun years earlier. Zerubbabel's great contribution had been the rebuilding of the temple, coming in and getting things ready to rebuild. Ezra's was the reformation of the people. Ezra and Nehemiah worked together in this task. Ezra was a priest. One might could say Ezra was a professional. I don't like that word, but one might could say that. Nehemiah was a layman. He wasn't a priest. But he was a leader, and he was necessary. He was a leader who was responsible to God. He was also a leader that was responsible on another level to the Persian king. But both Ezra and Nehemiah, working together as a team, and that's key, both of them had a deep commitment to God's will for Israel, as Yahweh had revealed to them. They're different personalities. They perform different functions. But both of them were quite necessary to get the job done. God doesn't have one particular person that's going to do everything in the body of Christ. Just like He didn't have one particular person that could do it all individually. It requires teamwork. That's why the whole body metaphor is there in First Corinthians. They formed a great team. The book of Nehemiah provides a great illustration of how prayer followed by hard work can accomplish seemingly impossible things when a person determines that they're going to trust and obey God. Nehemiah was a principled leader. And as a principled leader, Nehemiah was a man of responsibility, he was a man of vision, he was a man of prayer, and he was a man of action. He triumphed over opposition because he had the right motivation. 